Intro music brought to us from Max Russo. Today's guest is Rachel Miguel, class of 2003, and recent recipient of West Chicago High School 2019 Distinguished Alumni Award. Rachel graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a BA in Political Science and Sociology. As an undergrad, she clerked for the law offices of Cheng, Cho, and Yi in Chicago. Rachel attended DePaul College of Law, where she received her Juris Doctor degree. While in law school, Rachel interned at several nonprofit organizations that specialize in legal services for immigrants and asylum seekers. Since 2011, she's been the sole proprietor of Rachel Miguel Law Practice, specializing in immigration law. Links and contact information for her law practice will be in the podcast notes. Joining us today is Rachel Miguel, class of 2003. Rachel, what do you do? I am an immigration attorney, and I'm also a commissioner for the Illinois Latino Family Commission. How did you, how did you start on your path to become uh, an immigration lawyer? So I think it really started, um, I just always kind of had an interest. My family immigrated along with me when I was six years old in, in 1991. And so I think when you're in that position, a lot of times your parents put you in um, atypical situations where you as a child are really acting like the adult. And so this was often the case when we were dealing with any kind of legal proceeding, especially our own immigration case. And um, when we were going through application process, I think I was a lot more involved than typical um children would be. Um, and I just started developing an interest. And then it was, I believe, in undergrad when a friend, um, I had told my friend that um, maybe I wanted to do immigration law, but definitely was planning on going to law school regardless. And he said his best friend's mom owned her own immigration practice. And um, I was able to get an interview uh, with his with the immigration practitioners and they hired me, brought me on as a summer clerk, um, as a sophomore in college. And that pretty much confirmed my, my new, um, professional career, I guess. When you clerk at a law firm, what are the types of things that you do? Yeah. So it's, you're, it's essentially, you're like an attorney on trial, right? So they're, they're trying to make sure that they can teach you the skills that you're going to need once you get out in the real world and start practicing law. In law school, it always boggles, it boggled me at least, um, when you, you're in there in law school and you realize that you don't know how to be an attorney once you get out <laughs> because they don't teach you all of those practical skills. Um, so you learn really law school is about teaching you how to think critically and think like an attorney. Uh, but, but the actual day-to-day uh, running a business and, and, and um, being able to speak publicly and go to hearings and um, developing your verbal skills to be able to effectively communicate with your clients, all of those skills are something that needs to be learned. And so that's the importance of working as a clerk. It's really these, these firms that train you and teach you and give you that practical guidance and experience so that um, once you're done with law school, you can actually start working. And I guess the, um, the hope is that the firm that you clerk with while you're in law school would offer um, a full-time position once you graduate. Okay, I, I am absolutely hooked now. So could you tell me 
two things about what are the ways in which how a lawyer thinks and critical thinking like what's what's a what was one of those like really essential critical thinking skills that you learned um, uh, as you were clerking and then have kind of continued and sharpened as you've gone on with your career as a lawyer? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things is that um, you need to see both sides. You need to know both not just the strengths of your own argument or your own position, but also the weaknesses. But you also need to know the strengths and the weaknesses of your opponent's uh arguments too. So where where does the case law favor you? Where does the case law favor your opponent? Um, so that was um, a very, that's, that's basically what you learn in law school, that you need to be able to be prepared, um, not just for your own case or your own client, but you need to be able to anticipate and predict what the other arguments are going to be and what your weaknesses are going to be. And then the other thing, um, the most important thing probably that I learned in law school was that in order to win your argument, it's all about framing your story in a compelling way. So basically, as attorneys, we are storytellers. Um, especially if you're doing any kind of trial work, you need to be really good at telling your story and making the facts um, support your story as well as the law. But but really, um, it's not just about the law because you're you're going to lose if if you're in a trial and you have a jury, you're going to lose their interest if you're just presenting data, facts, case law you need to tug at the heartstrings. And so really you win or lose your case on whether you frame your story properly or not. So you were, you clerked the summer of your sophomore year. Where then does your uh, the, the path of, of law school take you from that moment on? Well, so that was the sophomore year of my undergrad. So I, I clerked there um, the summers, my sophomore and junior years. And then I took the year off right before or the summer off right before law school. And then um, then I went into law school and then I clerked with the same firm again uh, throughout law school. But then I also did a couple of externships with some not-for-profits. Um, that was very eye-opening to me and that I realized that I did not want to work for a not-for-profit. It just wasn't for me. <laughs> And sometimes, uh, you know, those 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 experiences where you you realize what you don't want to do are just as uh, important as the experiences that, you know, do push you into the direction that you want to go into. So, So I would imagine a lot of students would probably want to know, like, what's law school like? Yeah. So they use the. Socratic method, right? So you're in this big lecture hall, right? Um, so it, at DePaul, I think most of our classes were about 80 students, at least our, our first year, the, the 1L year. Um, and you need to do all of the readings because you can be called on randomly at any moment by the professor and you have to basically regurgitate what does the case say and what does this teach us, right? So, um, and then they just drill you with questions and, and try to get you to, to think critically and analyze the argument and the position that you're trying to take um, and really putting yourself in the position of the, the judges or the attorneys who were uh, presenting the case originally, and you're trying to come up with 
either policy arguments or legal arguments to try to support their claims. So it's a little intense uh, because you do have to think on your toes. But I think that's part of the um, it's part of the process, right? Because sometimes as, as attorneys, if you're doing any kind of trial work, you don't always know what's going to happen and you need to be able to react and respond and think in the, on the spot. Do you remember what your favorite moment when you were participating in a Socratic, what was the case and how did you know that you nailed it when you're like, yeah, I got this and where it all kind of came together? Do you remember what the scenario was? Um... No, there wasn't any single uh, enlightening moment like that. I, I, you know, you just hope that you don't make a big fool of yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, any time that I didn't, I feel like I didn't let my professor down was uh, quite exciting to me. So when you finish law school, we always hear stories about preparing for the bar exam and taking it. What's that about? What's, what's What's that like? Oh, yeah. So that's really fun. <laughs> so you, you finish law school and you think I survived. I did it. I'm an attorney. And then you realize, oh, wait, there's this other exam that um, I can't become a real attorney until I pass it. So you spend all summer um, studying for the bar. You study about three months. I myself took a, a course, um, a, a class that provide study outlines and they have professors who, who basically teach you. Uh, I believe we cover, I want to say it's 32 topics, 32 areas of law that we, we are responsible for basically memorizing and you can be tested on any of the 32 areas of law. So the bar exam is two days. The first day is a written portion where you can be tested on all 32 areas and um, and then the second day is a multiple choice scantron, and that is limited to just five areas of law. And and you do you know what those five are before, before you? Go uh, let me see if I remember. It's um, yeah. it's like constitutional law, uh, business law, or uh, sorry, criminal law. Um, what is the other one? Contract law. And then I can't remember the fifth one, but yeah, they're, they're, you know, the most common, um, areas. And, um, I do believe that they have since changed the bar exam, whereas before you used to only be able to, um, test in your state. And I think now they're going to be, it's going to be like, um, universal bar exam. So if you take it in one state, you should theoretically be able to be licensed in other states so that you don't have to keep taking bar exams every time you move. So that's so you, exciting. So you pass the so you pass the bar mm-hmm. exam, and then what? What's the next uh, step for you after passing the, the bar? So when I passed the bar, I was already working at a, a small um, firm, and uh, it. It wasn't a good fit for me. The culture of the firm wasn't a good fit for me. And given that I'd already had um, three years of experience in law school working in immigration law and two or three years from undergrad as a clerk, um, my friends and my family just encouraged me. You know, they thought that I was uh, a go-getter enough, entrepreneurial enough um, to be able to manage my own office. So um, basically within 
um, less than a year of graduating from law school, I opened up my own my own law practice, um, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Uh, what year did you open your office? It was in 2011, summer of 2011. So how how does that how do you go about opening up a, a law firm? I imagine, as you said, it was fairly daunting, but you were confident that you were a go getter, organized uh, to to uh, to go after that. What's the process of that like? Yeah, so I I think the most important part was um, really reaching out to your contacts, your network base. Um, Although I was an immigrant, my family, you know, we, we grew up, I grew up in, in Winfield, you know, not, uh, at least at that time, that was not a very immigrant-based population in, in, in Winfield. It was very white. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have a lot of the social connections to, to an immigrant community. Um, so that was probably the, the biggest challenge was trying to create uh, networks with immigrant based um, or, um, yeah, immigrant-based communities and organizations who would be willing to um, allow me to speak. So that was the the hard part is really I'm, I'm a little bit of a, um, um, well, I actually just, just discovered that I'm an introvert. And so that was very challenging because I'm not the most social person um, and it takes a lot of energy and courage for me to go up and say, hey, you know, listen to me, let me speak, you know, give me this opportunity. Um, so, yeah, it was a little overwhelming, but obviously it paid off in the end. Um, but, but you know, it just um, it was a good learning experience in that um you realize how important social connections are um, and in-person social connections, especially. How did you, how, how, so how did you watch the, your practice grow uh, throughout uh, the years? Yeah. So, I mean, um, luckily I had some friends who um, had clients who were in the immigrant community? Um, I, some of the teachers from West Chicago, honestly, at the beginning, they were they were the most crucial in, in giving me an outlet to just put my name out there in the community and do presentations and and lectures on know your rights and things like that, and just um, allowing me the opportunity to get my name out there. Um, so uh, you know, I started with zero clients because uh, when I left the firm that I left, they told me I, I was not allowed to contact any of the the uh, clients I had been working with. Um, so I started from scratch and here we are a nine years later. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. What would you say are, are the, 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 the typical uh, hurdles that many of your clients have uh, when, by the time they get to you? Yeah. So a lot of times um, my clients, are already in deportation proceedings. So they come to me because they've already um, been placed into removal proceedings. They've got picked up. A lot of my clients who are in deportation proceedings actually come from Indiana, not so much from Illinois. And the reason why is because Indiana does not allow licenses to people who don't have valid social security numbers, which automatically um, means that no immigrants who are here undocumented are allowed to have driver's licenses in Indiana. And the most common way for them to get placed into removal proceedings is to be stopped uh, for speeding or, you know, not, 
not stopping or whatever um, and getting pulled over um, for what should be a small ticket. And, you know, the officer learns that they are undocumented and then they don't have a license. And that's how most of my clients are placed into removal. So what are what are the ways in which you've seen the, like the more successful strategies to help your your clients? Yeah, so I would say that the successful cases, I mean, really do require extensive family ties, lawful family ties in the United States, and as well as some kind of either financial or health hardship um, of a U.S. family member. So that's the most common form of relief, really. It's called cancellation of removal. But in order to qualify for cancellation of removal, you need to convince the judge that your qualifying U.S. citizen or permanent resident family member would suffer extreme hardship in the event that you had to return to your home country. And so a lot of times that requires some kind of um, health problem or learning disability, something that um, would push your case to an, to what um, a, the level of extreme hardship that a judge needs to approve a case. The um, if we are kind of round back uh, a little bit, I was wondering when when did you? I think you had mentioned that you you were when you were younger, you were more or less the advocate for your parents in terms of probably having maybe a better handle on language when you'd have to kind of go through certain kind of um, uh, proceedings and, and and whatnot. When did you know as a student that you had like the aptitude? and strength to uh, say like, yeah, this is, this is what I can do. I'm, I'm good at language. I'm good at reading. Like when, when, when was that switch where you, you had that type of confidence? Yeah. So I think it started probably around sixth grade. Um, I was in a, a bilingual, it was um, like a social studies joined with English class, but it was a bilingual program, bilingual um, English social studies a class. And after being there for two weeks, I was bored out of my mind learning about Sacagawea. And I think we were even coloring. And I thought that that was an inappropriate activity for a sixth grader. <laughs> and I marched into the principal's office and I said, I'm not being challenged. Please move me out of this class. And so I think um, that was a very empowering experience that I didn't imagine, consult. Yeah. I didn't even consult with my mom. <laughs> I just took it upon myself to go and complain to the principal's office, and they actually listened to me. They didn't. I don't think they even called my mom to to make sure that she would be okay with it. They just, you know, within two days, they had um, found a new a new teacher, a new classroom for me. Um, so that was an empowering experience. But I think even after that, um, I started excelling really in, in English. I realized math and science was not so much my forte. And I was really more of like the social sciences there in, in the English, you know, those were my strengths. And so those are obviously skills that you need, um, being able to debate in public and being able to write well. Um, and enjoying it because as an attorney, I, I'd say about 80% of what I do is, is writing really, because um, once you get to your trial, that's just a, an act at the very end, but you need to have your, your legal argument um, well established in writing weeks before you even get to court. So um, yeah, I think um, I realized that those were skills that could work to my benefit um, as an attorney.
you made me think of a question I almost forgot to ask, which is when, let's say a client comes in from the moment that uh, you get a case, and then as you said, you have to do your research, your reading, your writing, and then you go to court. How long is that process typically? And, and what kind of goes on in between those spaces? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I get a lot of people in front of my office and uh, for consultations. And unfortunately, there's a huge percentage of people that I can't help. And the only thing that they're there for me to do is to tell them you are not eligible for any form of relief. So that's pretty depressing. But uh, let's say that we have one of those cases where I am able to do something. Let's say that they're already in deportation proceedings. So from the time they get to my office, um, I think the most recent cases that I've had um, in, in in court uh, have taken about five years from start to finish. Wow. Yeah. So it's really kind of interesting because um, you you kind of become like a family. You really do have to maintain good communication with, with each other. Um, you see these people grow as families, as individuals, as professionals. Um, a lot of times my clients come with no ability to work. And then through through the fact that they have a case pending, pending in immigration court, they are then eligible to um, apply for a work permit. And so seeing them go from not being eligible to work here legally to having a valid social security, a driver's license and a job where they can work um, and they don't have to be cash based or, you know, where, where there's actually authorized employment. And so you see that the, the employment opportunities that they have improve drastically and, and just their economic situation improves. And then they have kids or you see these kids grow up. You really do become very, um, very intertwined with your, 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 your clients. So because you're stuck with each other for five years. Do you remember your first trial uh, and what that was like? <laughs> yeah, I was so nervous. Um, so <laughs> Um, I remember I was so nervous that I actually started asking <laughs> when I was doing my, my direct examination of my client, I actually started asking the questions in Spanish <laughs> <laughs> because my client was Spanish speaking and, you yeah. know, you do a little bit of prep beforehand. And of course the prep we did was, was in Spanish cause we didn't have an interpreter at that time. You know, I'm, I'm fluent in Spanish, so I'm able to speak with my client now. And so once you get to the court setting, you have a, a court interpreter. And so there was no need for me to be asking uh, questions in Spanish. But I do remember the the judge um, at the very beginning, we were just doing our like our pretrial conference and just making sure that we were all on the same page and that we would be stipulating to what facts or whatnot. And um, the judge asked me, so counselor, what's your record? And I asked, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, how many won? How many lost? And I said, I'm at 100%, Your Honor. This is my first one. <laughs> so um, he was very kind to tell me at the end of the proceedings of, of our um, hearing that um, he was going to be approving my case, which is very atypical, actually, because uh, oftentimes you don't know what the judge's decision is going to be for quite a few months after when they issue the written decision. So that was an exciting experience. Embarrassing, but exciting. Yeah. So by by what trial were you like like riding a bike? It was like just no problem and you were it was just as easy as anything else. 
Um, I would say my hands still tremble. My heart yeah. still skips a beat every time. You never feel completely prepared. You, you know, you never know what's going to happen, how much the trial attorney is going to fight you, how involved the judge is going to be. Um, so I, I, I never walk in there and I think, yes, it's like riding a bike. I actually just had a trial on Friday. Uh, I really thought that my client um, was going to be ordered to depart the country um, because he, his form of relief um, had um, gone away. He had a son who had turned 21, so he was no longer able to prove extreme hardship to a qualifying family member. And at 8 p.m. the night before, I came across uh, a new decision issued by the Seventh Circuit Federal Court um, issued on January 23rd, so just three weeks ago. Wow. And, and I said, oh, my goodness, this gives my client a new form of relief. And so here I am at 8 p.m. the night before. Um, you've already told your client there's nothing you can do. You're going to be ordered to to depart the country within 60 days. And here I am preparing a completely new form of relief, new application, new evidence um, the night before. So that was really exhilarating my hands were shivering, were shaking so hard that I actually had to put a palm down on the desk um, so that I could keep them from 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 shaking and being visibly um, upsetting to my client. <laughs> That's incredible. So and now I have a, a whole new question. So how what is that research process like? So how did you how how is that available? That information in that ruling. How do you even go about searching for something so? Um, unique like that is is there how how what is that research process like? Yeah, uh, so I would say that the research process is actually the most important part about my case. Aside from writing, you need to be able to to find the cases that that back up your 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 argument, right? Um, in this particular instance, it, it was a little bit of a unique situation in that my client had told me that his spouse had filed a new, a new application, you know, something that she hadn't been pursuing before, which gave him a derivative benefit. And so that's how, um, but, but this, 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 um, um, decision in and of itself, I, I came across it just because I love hearing opinions and there is this federal judge that's very notorious for, um, his, uh, quippy remarks and sarcastic, uh, tone that he takes, and he really has no problem berating the the attorneys who are presenting before him. And so I read this case because um, some of my colleagues said that the the decision was just so scathing and embarrassing, really, to the Department of Homeland Security attorneys um, that it was worth a listen. And then as I was listening, I was like, "Oh my goodness, this talks directly to my client's case." So then that one, I, it was a little bit of a luck issue. Um, but for the most part, yeah, you're not usually doing research the night before. Like I said, you have to uh, present your briefs uh, 15 working days or 15 days before your trial. So everything technically, theoretically should be done way in advance. But yeah, that research part is is very um, important. And um, it's immigration law is changing so quickly right now. There's just so much federal litigation going on that you really need to um, stay on top of any major decision that, that gets issued because you never know when it's going to benefit one of your clients. That's in incredible how fortuitous it was that you were able to get that information just the hours before right. um, uh, the trial. Incredible. Yeah. 
Um, what's next for you? So, um, well, I probably, I want to start working in immigration policy and becoming a policy influencer, essentially. Uh, although I love what I do, I love being an immigration practitioner. Uh, I think that um, the people who are actually writing the legislation need an insider's perspective. A lot of times the people who are writing the legislation haven't been actual practitioners. And I think that it gives you a different perspective um, on how applying the law to everyday work um, really, really happens. Um, and you you're, you might see some downfalls um, that you wouldn't know otherwise or that you wouldn't be privy to otherwise. So I think um, – at some point, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to pursue um, some kind of policy, immigration policy work. So yeah. Oh, that's exciting! You've been so generous with your time, and I always like ending uh, each episode with words of advice uh, about how uh, you, you were able to find success and all of that. Um, what would you like to leave uh, listeners and current Wildcats about uh, any uh, tidbits for advice for success? Yeah, so I have two. Um, I always use the phrase be intentional uh, whenever I'm doing something, when I'm going to go to a networking event, when I'm going to do a speaking engagement, when I'm trying to make a decision uh, professionally or otherwise. And just um, so I say that to myself, it's like my own uh, my own slogan, my own pep talk, be intentional. And which is, it's just a reminder that you always have to have your goals in mind and that everything you do should build toward that goal. And whether you succeed or not really doesn't matter because if it's a success or if it's a total failure, it's a learning lesson either way. But just making sure that you are being intentional with what you do, what you're pursuing, how you spend your time, who you're hanging out with or associating with. And then my second um, advice for success, I would say, is um, to build relationships in person. I think nowadays it's so easy to be fooled into thinking that you have a big network, um, that you have a lot of friends or relationships, but Meaningful relationships don't develop over social media. They, it's not based on the number of um, Twitter followers or likes on Instagram or anything or how many Facebook friends you have. It's really the day-to-day, -day, hey, let's go out and meet for coffee. Let's go out and go bowl together. Let's, you know, how can I help you um, and how can you help me? How can we work in this together? So um, just developing those person-to-person -person relationships and, and um, keeping in touch with the people who have been there for you throughout your life, whether it's um, a family member, a friend, a coworker, whoever, um, and just continue to reach out to them because those are the people who, who fill you with energy and give you uh, good advice, the best advice that you're going to get. Rachel, thank you so much for your time today. That was really great. And maybe in a couple of years, we'll interview you uh, when you are writing policy and there'll be exciting conversation then as well. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to We Go Places. If you know of a great guest for this podcast, send me an email at B-T-U-R-N-B-A-U-G-H at D-9-4-
www.ghostbusters.org. 